Welcome to Bible Study for Regular People. I'm Tana, and let's get started. So I'm about to wrap up the book of Ecclesiastes. It always feels good when I wrap up a book. Um, but I'm going to reread the introduction summary to this book first, because the last few verses of chapter 12 are about the author. So the intro summary says that Solomon likely wrote Ecclesiastes, of course, near the end of his reign, reflecting on the entire course of his life. And I think that might explain why the tone of it feels like you can picture Solomon after a life full of the stress of being a king, the benefits of that, seeing money not buy happiness and all kinds of um things he would get exposed to in that position it feels a little bit depressing like maybe he's feeling like the end is near and is just laying it out on the table unfiltered it says it shows that certain paths in life lead to emptiness this profound book also helps us discover true purpose in life such wisdom can spare us from the emptiness that results from a life apart from god Solomon teaches that people will not find meaning through knowledge, money, pleasure, work, or popularity. True satisfaction comes from knowing that what we are doing is part of God's purpose for our life. Everything temporal must be seen in light of the eternal. And of course, the phrase he repeats so often is everything is meaningless or completely meaningless. And I looked it up and apparently meaningless is repeated a couple dozen times in this book. So finishing it up, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 8. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. He listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. The teacher sought to find just the right words to express truths clearly. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. Ouch. But, my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, for writing books is endless, and much study wears you out. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And the closing comment, the book of Ecclesiastes cannot be interpreted correctly without reading these final verses. No matter what the mysteries and apparent contradictions of life are, we must work toward the single purpose of knowing God. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon shows us that we should enjoy life, but this does not exempt us from obeying God's commands. We should search for purpose and meaning in life, but these cannot be found in human endeavors. We should acknowledge the evil, foolishness, and injustice in life, yet maintain a positive attitude and strong faith in God. All people will have to stand before God and be judged for what they have done in this life. We will not be able to use the inequities of life as an excuse for failing to live properly. We need to recognize that human effort apart from God is futile. Put God first. Now, receive everything good as a gift from God and realize that God will judge every person's life, whether good or evil. 
How strange that people spend their lives striving for the joy that God gives freely. So in my chronological Bible, this book also ends a major section. So the Bible, it has divided up into, let's see, four, five, ten sections. This marks the halfway point. It starts with the beginnings, which of course includes Genesis and the earlier books, uh, goes on to God's chosen family, the birth of Israel, possessing the land. This section we just finished is called the United Monarchy uh, from time period 1050 to 930 BC. And the next section that we're about to start is the Splintered Nation from 930 BC to 586 BC. The last era of a single king for Israel. So the section we just finished, the United Monarchy, includes First and Second Samuel, part of First Kings, First Chronicles, part of Second Chronicles, some Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. Moving into the Splintered Nation, this section is going to include First and Second Kings. Second, uh, the rest of Second Chronicles, Psalms and Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now I'm going to read the introduction to this section. The people of God seemed to be headed in the right direction. They'd seen great military victories under David's leadership, and God had given them rest from their enemies on every side. Solomon had built a magnificent temple for worshiping the Lord in Jerusalem. And side note, this is the temple that gets destroyed a few times. Uh, and had made the nation unbelievably prosperous. Their borders were expanding, but the people and their leaders were moving farther and farther from God and were making compromises in their worship and allegiances. Small cracks had formed in the beautiful picture they had created. After Solomon's death, things fell apart rather quickly. His son Rehoboam continued imposing heavy taxes and labor on the people, and they revolted against him. Ten of the twelve tribes united under Jeroboam and formed a new nation, the northern kingdom of Israel. This left just two tribes under Rehoboam's leadership. So Solomon had all tribes in his domain, and his son ended up king over just two. So Rehoboam's leadership uh, this was the southern kingdom, Judah. And from this point on, or once we get into it, it's then referred to Israel and Judah. And they're two different kingdoms. God's people, once a mighty unified nation, were now splintered into two nations at odds with one another. The two nations were often at war with each other, and rarely was either of them focused on worshiping God and displaying uh, and displaying him to the world as they were intended to do. God sent prophets to speak to the people and their leaders, but often they were ignored or even persecuted. Leaders preferred to surround themselves with people who told them what they wanted to hear rather than those who called them to repent and return to God. The northern kingdom of Israel constantly rejected God and followed their own way, 
both through the idol shrines that Jeroboam set up in Bethel and Dan and through worshiping Baal and other deities of the nations around them. Although they saw the great power of the true God through the ministry of Elijah and heard about his great love for them from prophets like Jonah and especially Hosea, they never returned to God while they were in the land. So God raised up the Assyrians to conquer Israel, scatter the Israelites throughout the world, and repopulate the land with exiles from other conquered nations. Judah, the other kingdom, saw the fate of their northern neighbor, but they didn't heed the warning. God spared them from Assyria using the prophets Isaiah and Micah, along with the good king, Hezekiah. Ooh, I like Hezekiah to lead the nation back to God temporarily, but the reforms wouldn't last. Judah always went back to worshiping idols, rejecting God and his prophets, and neglecting their role as witnesses to God's power and love to the nations. Instead, they continued to try to be like nations around them. And so God brought the powerful Babylonian empire against them in judgment. The once unified people of God were splintered into two rebellious nations, and ultimately, they were splintered even further. When they were cast out of the land, exiled to Assyria, then Babylon, and beyond. In the last decades of Judah's decline, we get a glimpse of God still active among his people, even in exile. Daniel and Ezekiel. Daniel's a good book. Daniel and Ezekiel began their ministries during this period. They were a shining light pointing the way forward for the people of God in this bleak and dark time. So that's the introduction, and next time I read in the Old Testament, it will be starting in 1 Kings chapter 12, which is the point in 1 Kings where the northern tribes start to revolt, and this is around 930 BC. Over in the New Testament, we're also heading home stretch on the book of 1 Corinthians. Last time we read chapter 14 on the gifts of tongues and prophecy and keeping an orderly worship. This uh, chapter is subtitled The Resurrection of Christ. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you, unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important, and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom who are still alive, though some have died. So over 500 witnesses who were still alive at the time he was writing this. So he's saying, they'll back me up. You know this happened. Verse 7. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am the least of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. But whatever I am now, 
It is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results, for I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message as you have already believed. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case... All who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Let me read that again. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. So is he trying to say that they're all going to be raised from the dead? Yes, but not exactly the same way Christ is. As he just said in verse 6, of all the people who would witnessed him, witnessed Christ rise from the dead. He says, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. So clearly he doesn't believe that anybody who dies after Christ is going to immediately come back to life. Like that's not what he's saying here, clearly. But he is talking about a type of resurrection. Verse 22, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given a new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will return to the kingdom over uh, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? So people were getting baptized for those who were already dead. So, like... Does that mean like if, if, if I were living in that time and someone I love had passed away who wasn't baptized, I'd be getting baptized for them, like in retrospect kind of thing? I guess that's what that is. 
Verse 30, And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you, and what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead. And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Think carefully about what is right, and stop sinning, for to your shame I say that some of you don't know God at all. Ouch! <laughs> oh, I, I love Paul. <laughs> but someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a bare seed of wheat or whatever you're planting. Then God gives it the new body he wants it to have. A different plant grows from each kind of seed. Similarly, there are different kinds of flesh, one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are also bodies in the heavens and bodies on the earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the glory of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their glory. It is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they will be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they will be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we are now like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. What I am saying, dear brothers and sisters, is that our physical bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. These dying bodies cannot inherit what will last forever. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever, and we who are living will also be transformed for our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die this scripture will be fulfilled death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting for sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. 
always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. I'm one chapter away from finishing this book. Let's go for it. Now, regarding your question about the money being collected for God's people in Jerusalem, and this is a short chapter, by the way, (laughs) you should follow the same procedure I gave to the churches in Galatia. On the first day of each week, you should each put aside a portion of the money you have earned. Don't wait until I get there, then try to collect it all at once. When I come, I will write letters of recommendation for the messengers you choose to deliver your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems appropriate for me to go along, they can travel with me. I am coming to visit you after I have been to Macedonia, for I am planning to travel through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay a while with you, probably all winter, and then you can send me on my way to my next destination. This time, I don't want to make just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay a while, if the Lord will let me. In the meantime, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. There is a wide open door for a great work here, although many oppose me. When Timothy comes, don't intimidate him. He is doing the Lord's work just as I am. Don't let anyone treat him with contempt. Send him on his way with your blessing when he returns to me. I expect him to come with the other believers. Now about our brother Apollos. I urged him to visit you with the other believers, but he was not willing to go right now. He will see you later when he has the opportunity. Be on guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And do everything with love. You know that Stephanus and his household were the first of the harvest of believers in Greece, and they are spending their lives in service to God's people. I urge you, dear brothers and sisters, to submit to them and others like them who serve with such devotion. I'm very glad that Stephanus, uh, Fortunatus, and uh, Achaicus, I probably butchered that, have come here. They have been providing the help you weren't here to give me. They've been a wonderful encouragement to be to me and they have been as they have been to you. You must show your appreciation to all who ser- who serve so well. Gosh, I'm getting tongue tied tonight. The churches here in the province of Asia send greetings in the Lord as do Aquila and Priscilla and all the others who gather in their home for church meetings. All the brothers and sisters here send greetings to you. Greet each other with Christian love. Here is my greeting in my own handwriting, Paul. He puts in capitals. If anyone does not love the Lord, that person is cursed. Our Lord, come. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. So the way that Paul finishes this letter to the the members of the church in Corinth kind of reminds me of why I feel the way I do about proceeding with caution around um, not taking scripture too literally. Yes, it has meaning for our life today, clearly. But at the same time, Paul is clearly writing to a specific group at a specific time about specific issues related to them. So do they all translate to our lives now? I really don't think so. I do think if he was writing to us today, he would have some very different things to say. So it kind of leaves it up to the reader, I guess, to 
interpret what has meaning in their life today. What might have been particular to that group in time? And I don't know that there's a right or wrong way to interpret that. Um, I think a lot of these things are not salvation issues. They're not relationship with Christ issues. Unfortunately, however, relationships have ended over it. Churches have been divided over it. <laughs> but it's, it's really just up to each of us to read scripture for ourselves and do our best. All right, time for some commentary. And to be honest, there is a lot of commentary on these two chapters. And most of them are kind of meh, but there's a couple good ones. So 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 4. I passed on to you what was most important and... What had also been passed on to me, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. It was prophesied and it happened. Here's the comment. The central theme of the gospel is given in these verses, a key text for the defense of Christianity. These are the three most important points. Number one, Christ died for our sins. And there's a whole paragraph on this. Number one, Christ died for his sins. Just as the scripture said, without the truth of this message, Christ's death was worthless. And those who believe in him are still in their sins and without hope. However, Christ, as the sinless son of God, took the punishment of sin so that those who believe can have their sins removed. The scriptures refers to Old Testament prophecies such as Psalm 16, 8 to 11 and Isaiah 53, 5 to 6. Christ's death on the cross was no accident or afterthought. It has been part of God's plan from all eternity in order to bring about the salvation of all who believe. And what's impressive for me to remember here is that the stars did certain things at his birth and death. And of course, what we know about our solar system is it's like clockwork, which means when God created the stars in the sky, they were pre-programmed at that point to do certain things on the day that Christ would be born and the day that Christ would die. How crazy is that? Anyway. All right. Number one, Christ died for sins. Number two, he is buried. The fact of Christ's death is revealed in the fact of his burial. Many have tried to discount the actual death of Christ, but Jesus did in fact die and was buried in a tomb. And three, he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the scripture said. Christ was raised permanently, forever. His father raised him from the dead on the third day, as noted in the Gospels, Friday afternoon to Sunday morning, three days in Jewish reckoning of time. Jesus quoted the prophet Jonah in Matthew twelve forty, and see John one seventeen to show the connection to three days as prophesied in the Old Testament, Psalms sixteen, eight to eleven, and one ten. Also foretold the resurrection of the Messiah. And then on verses 13 to 18, for if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and our faith is useless. 
And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave, but that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. This is getting repetitive. (laughs) And you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. All right, comment. The bodily resurrection of Christ is the center of the Christian faith. Because Christ rose from the dead, and as he promised, we know that what he said is true and that he is God. The resurrection affirms the truthfulness of Jesus' life and words. The resurrection confirms Jesus' unique authority to say, I am the resurrection and the life, John eleven twenty five. Because he rose, we have certainty that our sins are forgiven. Because he rose, he lives and represents us before God. Because he rose and defeated death, we know we also will be raised. Christ's resurrection guaranteed both his promise to us and his authority to make that promise. We must take him at his word and believe. Mm, Preach it. Here's a historical comment, a contextual comment. Most Greeks did not believe that people's bodies would be resurrected, resurrected after death. They saw the afterlife as something that happened only to the soul. According to Greek philosophers, the soul was the real person imprisoned in a physical body, and at death, the soul was released. There was no immortality for the body, but the soul entered an eternal state. Christianity, by contrast, affirms that the body and soul will be united after resurrection. The church at Corinth was in the heart of Greek culture. Thus, many believers had a difficult time believing in a bodily resurrection. People, uh, Paul wrote, excuse me, Paul wrote this part of his letter to clear up this confusion about the resurrection. Well, I think my whole life, I've kind of envisioned it the way the Greeks do. Body dies, soul moves on. Not necessarily a uniting, a reuniting of a body and a soul again, but just soul and existence. I don't know. One day I'll find out. All right. On the verse about people being baptized for those who are already dead, it kind of says, kind of affirms how I had interpreted that. Um, Some believers were baptized on behalf of others who had died unbaptized. So there you go. Nothing more is known about this practice, but it obviously affirms a belief in the resurrection. Paul is not promoting baptism for the dead. He is illustrating his argument that the resurrection is a reality. Let's see. Let me reread the verse. Verse 29. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? Yeah, he's just he's just drawing from their local context to make a point. Another historical context comment. Paul launches into a discussion about what our resurrected bodies will be like. If you could select your own body, what kind would you choose? Strong, athletic, beautiful? Paul explains that we will be recognizable in our resurrected bodies. They will be better than we can imagine, for they will be made to live forever. We will still have our own personality and individuality, but these will have been perfected through Christ's work. The Bible does not reveal everything that our resurrected bodies will be able to do, 
but we know they will be perfect without any infirmities. You know, maybe I do kind of believe in a in some sort of recognizable body after death, simply because of near-death stories. Um, you know, they have a lot of similarities. Everybody who's had a near-death experience tends to, you know, there's patterns, right? And one of them being that they will see people and either recognize them because they knew them, they're their granddad who died or, or something, or... They won't recognize them, but when they, uh, you know, awake and their family's like, oh gosh, you're alive. And they look at photo albums. They're like, wait a minute, that's the person I saw. Right. And it's a person they never met in life because they had already passed on, but they saw them in an afterlife and were able to recognize their face. So I think that's pretty interesting. Um, the commenters explain his little fundraising effort here. It says the Christians in Jerusalem, and this comes from the opening of chapter 16, the Christians in Jerusalem were suffering from poverty and famine. So Paul was collecting money for them. So that's why he was asking the Corinthian church to make some donations for the Jerusalem church and that he'd pick it up and take it to them to help them out. And voila! Two books finished. Yes, feels good. Um, next book is actually just picking back up in the book of Acts. My chronological Bible breaks up the book of Acts around a few other books, including 1 Corinthians. So next time, we'll dive back into that and then go on to 2 Corinthians. <music>